0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new Deep cuts Live. I'm your host, Antoine Reed, and today we have a very special guest. We have Nicholas Melio from Foundation Cigar Company. Um, Very interesting brand, very interesting story. So I'm just gonna jump right on in and bring up our guest, and we're gonna just start our conversation. Nicholas, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, thank I you. love the
0: uh, whole concept and the name of the show. And <laughs> well, it's like uh, I know that there's been this whole talk on the uh, Facebook and social media for the last couple of weeks about anything named cigar uh, getting pulled from YouTube and stuff oh, like that. That's right. So what about? When I was thinking about the name of it. I was like, I don't really know if I want to name it. <laughs> you know, uh, anything cigar related, just in case that happens. And it seems like that's now kind of happening. So
1: Mart, Yeah. I've seen a few uh, guys having some trouble here and there. Yeah. And my Facebook game has been uh, kind of on the weak side. Uh, you know, we have our, 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 company Facebook page, but I've been heavy on the Instagram side of things um, just because of time. So uh, what's up, Steve uh, Pittsburgh black and gold. Um, Yeah, sorry about that. So, yeah, um, it's it's, uh, interesting what's going on uh, within the community. And it was smart. I didn't even
0: think about that with the name. But yeah,
1: smart move.
0: But anyway, it's not about me. It's about you. So, you know, I feel like you're one of those people that I've had on my, I make out a list of like top, top, top people. And so I felt like the first year i did deep cuts so i was like i got to work out the kinks here to get some of these top people on here and so i didn't want to do it on the instagram live version and then I, I finally built up to this version and we had to work out the kinks here and now you're you're finally here so i was like we got to get nicholas on here to talk about foundation like it's like that's like a must i feel like it's you're like i said one of those top people in the industry right now who are just doing some really interesting things with your cigar brand and Appreciate it, Vanna. So, I appreciate, appreciate it. We try. We try. We try. And share that story today. Um, When's when the I last like, time we talked? I can't remember. I think it was It was at one of the IPCPRs. I was. I mean, okay. I think it, was it was the last one that was called, called IPCPR. So it was probably IPCPR 2019. Yeah, that was 19. Yep. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that was the last time because then, it, like, I didn't go for a couple of years and and all that stuff. And I know you didn't go for a year. And so yeah, time flies. Oh, right. man. Yeah, time flies. So what I want to do is to start off by I know your story, and so I don't want to spend too much time on your backstory. But the kind of for those people who are new who have not had the pleasure of listening to you on other podcasts, could you just? explain how you got into the cigar industry yeah i got into the cigar
1: industry in 1996 actually i was 18 and started running a cigar shop in connecticut called the calabash shop which was a mom and pop run by two amazing women mary and carol uh and they were their shop was not too far from the university that I was going to be attending that year. And by that time, I I had just gotten full into cigars when, when I was 18, Um, you know, growing up in Connecticut and my grandfather smoking Connecticut cigars, there was a lot of cigars produced in Connecticut uh, before really it kind of faded away at the end of the nineties. But, My grandfather smoked Connecticut cigars. Their father smoked Connecticut cigars. So I kind of grew up around the aroma of Connecticut cigars for most of my upbringing. And I just really just dove deep into learning about the world of cigars by the time I was 18. And that was the height of what we called the cigar boom, right? Uh, 96 was this period of time where we saw this huge growth in the cigar industry. I think in the eighties it was really going downhill because you had such an older generation from the war times that were kind of starting to fade away. And then it was really the, the introduction to, you know, cigar aficionado in the early nineties that sort of changed the perception of cigars from your grandfather, you know, kind of smoking a cigar to cigar bars and making it a bit more chic and in style. And that was early 90s. And then it came to a peak in 96. And I used to go into the shop every Friday with my brother, and there'd be lines out the humidor. I mean, literally, you'd have to wait to get into the walk-in humidor and then wait to get up to the register. And I used to see these two women just running back and forth, trying to keep up with with all the customers. And I finally had made it up to the cash register. And I said, listen, here's my phone number. Here's my email. I had just got an email, I think, for the first (laughs) time. I said, I know every cigar in that humidor. I know about the process. I know all the prices. I would love to work for you guys. I I need a job. And that was summer of 96. Didn't hear from them all summer. And then it was a week before I started my freshman year at college. And I got the call. We want you to come work for us. And they, they had made the connection that my grandfather had been buying pipe tobacco there for a long time. Because they were known, they were actually the biggest, the largest pipe selection handmade briar pipes in the state they had an incredible uh briar pipe selection and a full pipe tobacco bar which was really impressive so uh they put their trust in me to run the humidor and it was a dream come true you know for for me starting college the idea of working at a cigar shop I couldn't think of of anything you know a cooler job and uh That really gave me my first, you know, uh, my first view into the cigar business. And at that time, I started meeting people from different companies that were just starting, you know, at the 97, 98. And that's when I met uh, John Drew from from Drew Estate, which was a totally unknown cigar company at the time. And the sales rep used to come in. He came in with a cigar called Samaro. Nobody knows about it. It was god-awful. <laughs> um, I didn't take it into the shop, but sales rep kept coming back. And then finally they came out with a cigar that Nick Perdomo was making called La Vieja Habana. I brought that into the shop. And not too long after that, I ended up meeting John, John say, 97, maybe, 98. And we just kept in touch. He had just begun his journey in Estelí, Nicaragua. And then, over a period of, you know, from 97 to about 2002, we kind of kept in touch uh, via email and phone calls here and there. And I left school to work overseas, travel the world. I ended up backpacking uh, around the world. I bought an around the world ticket and i think john was on my email list you know so i was emerging from the jungles of you know thailand vietnam you know china and i think the light bulb went out off in his head okay he might be willing to move to nicaragua and he was right he was right so i moved to nicaragua in march of 2003 and that really started my career in the manufacturing and tobacco side of things. I was 24 and I jumped in the deep end and had to learn how to swim. Wow. still treading water.
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned, I know I was watching other interviews that you've done um, just to get prepared for this one. You were mentioning Connecticut, And just like the cigar culture and the tobacco industry, how how concentrated it is there, but not a lot of people know that sometimes. Like when we think of cigar culture now, you kind of think, obviously you think of Cuba first, just because it's been ingrained in us. And then you think, you know, Dominican Republic, you think Nicaragua, you don't really think of the U.S. And it's really interesting because when uh, I was doing some research today for a story I'm writing, about JC Newman and how Tampa, you know, the whole history of Tampa and how it kind of emerged. You know, there's so many companies in the Key West, then they all kind of migrated up to Tampa because it was a little bit better situation. And they have to worry about as many hurricanes <laughs> hitting them right. in the Key West um, area. Yeah. And then just that concentration. But um, just give us a little bit of story about Connecticut. And why, you know, why it's so important to the tobacco industry in general?
1: Yeah, it's very important. Uh, you know, people see Connecticut, I think, from time to time. If you're in, you know, you smoke cigars or you work cigar shops, you you see Connecticut shade from time to time. Connecticut Broadleaf. Um, it's, it's difficult because over the years, Connecticut hasn't really, you know, it's mostly farmers. You know that are doing their thing. So the marketing side of protecting Connecticut and its, you know, its name and the promotion and marketing hasn't really been there. I'm hoping to change that over the next five years, and that's really the main focus too. A foundation. Uh, we we set up our offices in the Connecticut River Valley. We actually have a new office we're opening on a hundred acre farm in the valley wow. next next month and connecticut is is just been one of the main cigar tobacco growing regions in the world and before 1959 connecticut and cuba had a very strong relationship in trading tobaccos most of the connecticut cigars being manufactured in connecticut were using cuban fillers and then using connecticut wrappers so that history is said to go back you know, to the early 1700s, late 1600s. But Connecticut is unique compared to other tobacco growing regions, which are mainly volcanic in nature. Nicaragua, the land of lakes and volcanoes. We have the most active volcanoes here in Central America. Amazing volcanic soil. You know, you have Indonesia, San Andreas, Mexico, mainly volcanic. Connecticut um, is a... Mohegan word that actually means the long tidal river. So the Connecticut River is 406 miles long. It flows south through four states and empties into the Long Island Sound. It used to be a gigantic lake called Lake Hitchcock. It was actually a gigantic finger lake that formed after the last glacier period. That lake over 3,000 years ended up breaking and then becoming the Connecticut River. And in that process, there was 30,000 acres of sandy loam that from the lake bed that settled north of Harford, Connecticut. And this is the Connecticut River Valley. And what that soil does is it acts as a great filtration for, for water and irrigation. So what happens is, is that the tobacco roots are able to flow really deep uh, into this there's about 33 inches of topsoil before it starts hitting clay that makes for very strong tobacco roots and it also helps produce the tobacco to be sweeter so the deeper the roots kind of go it produces more of a sweetness in in the plant and that's really I think what makes Connecticut broadleaf tobacco, you know really unique is it's very naturally sweet and earthy Um, but it's because of that river which really makes connecticut unique so it it became you know one of the largest tobacco producers regions in in the country um hold on one second hold on one second i'm sorry Sorry
0: about
1: that. that was Muchas gracias. So yeah, so the the Connecticut River, this is what really makes Connecticut, you know, really unique and different when it comes to the tobacco. You know, Connecticut shade became a huge phenomena throughout the 1900s in connecticut Um, unfortunately a lot of the shade that golden you know wrapper we know as connecticut shade a lot of it's not grown in connecticut anymore because that seed was taken to ecuador in the 80s and slowly that production has shifted to ecuador but connecticut broadleaf which is a completely different seed variety we can't grow enough of um and then also there's a lot of Havana seed being grown in the Valley. So there's a lot more of this Cuban seed being grown in the Valley, which has always been in the Valley um, for, for hundreds of years, but it's not until recently. It's kind of picked up
0: again. Yeah. Well, somewhere I was reading or listening to, and they're talking about Connecticut cigars and how Connecticut cigars of yesteryear are not what connecticut cigars are mostly today like has that been your experience any like is there a difference between the connecticut cigars of maybe our grandfather's time period compared to the connecticut cigars that are in the stores now
1: so there's not a lot of connecticut
0: i mean connecticut cigars
1: in the sense of ones that be manufactured in connecticut i mean they really don't exist Back mm-hmm. in the day, they were all being manufactured in Connecticut, you know, the oh. factories in, in new Haven, in Hartford. And then over the years, it they actually shifted production to Pennsylvania because of tax issues. So Pennsylvania became more favorable from a tax perspective. So I think that started in like the eighties um, and nineties that you had production shifting there. Connecticut tobacco, um, uh, You know, the shade, the shade is a very light golden leaf. It has a very, a much smaller vein structure. It's much thinner. Shade from the Valley over the years, they shifted to Ecuador because the market really didn't pick up on it because it's much more of a neutral, milder leaf. Compared to the other seed varieties like broadleaf. Does that make sense? So, shade was able to shift, but broadleaf is a completely different seed variety. You know, they do grow broadleaf in Pennsylvania, they are growing it in a lot of different places, but you can't replicate, you know, Connecticut broadleaf coming from the valley because of the soil. Uh, because of the valley, it it definitely is very unique compared to taking that leaf and growing it in other, you know, countries or states. Um, I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, yeah. When you are talking about your how you got started in retail, basically before you you moved to Nicaragua and got the factory experience. Um, Working in retail, did that help you when you were, you know, learning the processes of cigar making and before you launched foundation? Because I found like a lot of entrepreneurs, whether you're in the cigar industry or some other industry, like those people who really take the time to work in retail and they seem to have a completely different trajectory than those who just kind of jump in and say, I'm just going to create this product and release it. Um, I agree. Yeah, it definitely helped me tremendously. And I think at the
1: time it was really the value that I was bringing to the situation was is the only value because I had no experience you know, on the manufacturing or the raw leaf side. So coming down, understanding what the product was supposed to be definitely added a lot of value. And I, I could see that within the team and the people that I was working with also. And, you know, at first they didn't realize that I had come from a cigar background working the shop. And I was adding all this information and they were like, how does he know, you know, this kind of stuff or what? And then they didn't realize that I had worked in a shop and then it kind of all made sense. So it it enabled me to be able to reverse engineer the process. So I was starting from, you know, I knew what the cigars needed to be in the box. I needed how they had to combust, how they needed to burn and, you know, the different profiles that consumers were looking for within the U.S. market, uh, understanding different brands and what people liked. And then that enabled me to start reverse engineering and eventually, you know, really start learning tobacco and blending tobacco and understanding where a lot of the flavor profiles that I enjoyed as a cigar smoker were coming from and then how to, you know, put blends together. And, and so it definitely added a lot of value for me.
0: Wow. Um, When you I know from your story, you basically wanted to launch foundation when you did because you heard all these regulations were getting ready to come into to play. And you were like, it's either now or never. Now, some people would see, hear regulations and they would see dollar signs and they would say, this is going to be a big expense. Do I really want to you know, jump into this new industry? You know, I have to pay for this stuff, this regulations that are coming. And then on top of that, I need to somehow get this brand in front of as many people as possible. So what was that transition like when you finally were like, I'm gonna go from where I am to suddenly I'm gonna become a brand owner myself and launch this thing like now and I have to want and I have a time frame when I have to do it because if I get it any later, it might be too late. What was that time It period? was
1: risky. It was risky, man. It was definitely risky uh, because I had really evolved so much with working with Drew Estate and we had come such a long way together and the team, you know, especially here in, in Nicaragua. I mean, we started as probably one of the smallest factories in Nicaragua when I started in 03 and built that into the largest factory in in Nicaragua by 2014. And most of the management team you know, it became my family. You know, you're a foreigner working overseas, you're spending, especially what it took to build what we built, a lot of weekends, a lot of long nights, and people become your family. You know, so you, you spend the most time with them. So I struggled with it for a good couple of years. And then I knew just waiting more and more that the thought of not being able to start my own company ever was definitely a big driving force. And I knew, I knew it was risky in the sense of all the regulation, but then I I felt I had built up so much experience from the leaf side of things. And, you know, this is such a small industry in general when it comes to businesses, it's such a small niche Uh, industry, I knew, you know, it wasn't like somebody younger is going to come take your job is I had built up all this experience. So I knew if I failed, I could eventually find, you know, work as a leaf buyer or, you know, working in a factory or, you know, working with farmers in the, in the Connecticut River Valley. So I kind of had a safety net. I felt uh, and I felt if I didn't do this, then I'd end up regretting
0: it probably for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to live in regret. I think that's just a, a good kind of business lesson to just like take that leap. You know, I think the biggest risk sometimes is, is not taking the you know not taking the the leap and not getting out there. And like you said, you knew you had something. If things did not go the way you wanted it to, then you had something to fall back on. And, um,
1: yeah, you know. I mean, fortunate for me, I, I, you know, have been so many years in this industry, I think if I was in another industry or not as much experience, that leap would be even more difficult. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, you know, I knew this was going to be a lot of work starting my own company, but I didn't really know how much it was going to take. Um, and I think about other industries or people starting other businesses and, you know, maybe being newcomers to the industry and not having the experience that I built up. It's it's a challenge, man. I can it's it's a lot of risk and a lot of challenge starting your own business.
0: When you finally decided to launch your own company, what was the biggest what would you say was the biggest challenge you faced? The biggest challenge is really understanding the sales
1: and distribution side of things because that hadn't been my experience since I worked the tobacco shop in the 90s. So I had been out of the sales and distribution side of the business for so long and I wasn't really known as much on the sales and distribution side. And, And you have that a lot, right? You have so many people behind the scenes that do this day in and day out, but nobody knows about them on the marketplace and sales. And that's definitely its own world. And I started to see the different worlds within our industry, right? You have the farming, I always say there's three worlds. The farming, that's its own world. Manufacturing, production, that's its own world. Sales and distribution, its own world. They're all intertangled, but they all are different worlds that, you know, if you don't have a piece of, of one of them, it, it, it's definitely challenging. And so the sales side was the challenge, you know, and understanding more the sales and, and kind of distribution and um, working with people is definitely a bigger challenge because coming from Nicaragua is its own set of work, you know, ethics, culture, and then working in sales and distribution completely, completely different
0: in many ways. You know, the sales part is, I think it trips up a lot of people. And I've talked, we've had discussions with different people who've come on Deep Cuts over the years about sales. And it's a lot, it sounds like easy. It's like, oh, just, you know, convince people to to buy this thing. But sales, and then like you said, and sales and, and distribution on top of that, um, I, you know, I used to do some freelance stuff for a, a beer company, and that's even more complicated, maybe. Yeah. You know, sometimes then the, the it it it's like oh, definitely. You a product, but you have to get it into stores. And then when you're speaking to the retailers, it's like it's a completely different experience for you being a consumer to being a brand owner, because they're like they might know you as the consumer and they're like, you know, laughing it up with you. And then you get to the part where you're like, can you bring this in? And they're like, well, <laughs> You know, it, it gets because, like, well, dot, 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 you know, it has to do, you know, I, I can't bring in this much product or I'm going to bring it in, but it has to sell this much by this time frame or we're just not going to bring in any more. And it's just a lot.
1: Yeah. And that becomes the challenge, right? Because then, you know, unless you're in a store that's really hand selling things, you know, it's you're so many brands on the shelf when you walk into a humidor so what is going to make a consumer you know purchase your product and and that becomes the challenge of branding and marketing Mm -hmm. and uh you know developing developing brands and that just doesn't happen overnight i i think our industry is is interesting in the way that your barrier to entry is not as grand as say entering the alcohol business, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can start a brand, you can buy cigars from Nicaragua, put your bands on them, you know, so your barrier to entry is not as great uh, compared to say, you know, launching a, 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 an alcohol brand, but the challenges of understanding the retail stores and the culture of the retail stores is a whole, different set of challenges. I mean, we don't necessarily operate like normal business practices within our industry. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of get hung up is they think things are supposed to operate this, you know, this way. And they don't.
0: Um, I think what yeah. I found is most people know that we're up op- this is 2022, but what they don't always know is that sometimes the retailers, are operating in like 2017 or 20. Oh man, Uh, you're being, you're being generous (laughs) there. They have not caught up yet with that, that curve. And sometimes, so it's like, you know, even something as simple as, Hey, let me send you a PDF of our new sales catalog. And they're like, well, I want you to physically come into my store. (laughs) You're Mm -hmm. like, I can't afford to just like go, you know, to go to your store. Can you just look at the catalog and you go, no and i you know i can send you samples no i still want you to come to my store that's man. like what i found like a lot of the cigar people tell me that man, it's old school man that's, that's, of- that's what it is now like they don't understand like that's that's not what it was like years ago it was like even worse but that's what it is here we are speaking in 2022 that's still what it's like you know we were talking about a trade show getting ready to come up you know the trade shows are still important because people want to see you they want to interact with you you have printing stuff out we're not we're not just relying on we're printing things out right so this this is completely i can understand how that could be a challenge
1: i mean we print out catalogs still and and but that's a great example right that's a really great example and i think a lot of people coming outside of the industry don't realize those kind of things yeah i mean you can see it too and you know people's websites mm-hmm. i mean even if you go on certain people that are have been in the industry and be, i mean you go to their websites and their websites are they're 10 15 years old
0: <laughs> and then they'll tell you they'll tell you now that they like well websites don't really matter because they don't people don't visit the websites you are like you have to think about it for a minute you're like well how do people find out about you like how do they buy stuff from you like and they're like and they can't even answer that question it's just like a big kind of question mark there's a real disconnect in the in that sales there is and, there is. and that's that it, it can
1: be frustrating because to me a lot of times it's these fundamentals are not you know down and i think the fundamentals are crucial for for having a successful business and for You know, educating consumers and and gaining customers. Um, You know, it's, man, I could tell you stories. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's challenging. It's challenging. We we try to do our best, you know, to have, uh, provide a lot of these materials, you know, for our customers and to work with them and, you know, form this partnership with them because this is what I do. You know, I've been in this since I was 18. I have no plans of going anywhere. So we really try to establish, you know, a partnership with our customers and show them that we're, you know, really behind our products and, you know, not just having them sell them, but also helping them, you know, sell the products also. And and that's kind of, what I think, what retailers look for is, okay, well, what are you doing to invest and help promote and build your
0: brands. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah. Now, I think a big part of your brand though, as well, is the look of it, like the actual branding, the artwork, and I know you're sitting with the art, the person responsible for doing the art, Who so it's a very unique and important part of your brand because it stands out, like if you're in a trade show and you have your face with all the different booths and stuff and you see their branding yours stands out and it has like all each brand or each line has a story they have their own kind of looks to them own style like you're not afraid to kind of go outside the box you know some cigar brands they all want they want every line to look the same except for maybe like a little you know yeah that was a conscious decision um you know is from the beginning
1: is choosing a name, you know, you could, there, the easier route, what was to do, you know, more of a, say Padrone style, you know, Padron 3000, Padron 5000, Padrone, and it's a, you know, because again, it's about branding and it's about messaging and it's about, you're dealing with people that are coming into human, everybody has lives, you know, most people are not into cigars to the next level. They enjoy them, but they don't have time to really, you know read all the literature and and all this stuff. So it becomes about branding. I knew it was going to be more difficult to have a company name and then an umbrella of brands under um, foundation. But I really wanted that to be able to create different brands and really express and complement the blends with things that, you know, I'm very passionate about also. My art director, Alex, is is really passionate about. So the, the brands become, you know, a uh, a way, kind of a, a chariot to deliver, you know, messages about things that we're really passionate about. History, culture, you know, and I wanted to create brands that hopefully will be around in another hundred years. Um, that was I didn't want to just create. You know, new thing, new, 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 new. And also, you know, at the time, it was also a challenge with all the regulation that you might not even be able to do that. But I grew up in the industry with brands. You know, it was about core line, core line brands. And I think that's what the end retailers are looking for, too, because they want to see core
0: lines that they're able to sell, you know, day in and day out. So tell us how you came to create that first foundation cigar blend. You know, I knew that as the
1: first debut brand, I wanted to express to the market what Nicaragua is all about. You know, having been down here for so long, I really wanted consumers to see Nicaragua and what, Nicaraguan culture is all about and I knew I wanted to do an all Nicaraguan blend you know I had worked on different blends behind the scene but I never came out with something that was 100% Nicaraguan puro so filler binder wrapper so I talked to Alex here and I told him my plans to start in the company and we started working on El which is Really, if you're here in, in Nicaragua, El Huehuense is seen everywhere. I mean, this type of imagery, um, you know, these are masks, but this imagery throughout, you know, the north, the south, everywhere, you see this image imagery throughout Nicaragua. And it's really the, the cultural identity of the country. It's it's what makes, I think, Nicaragua unique. And Huehuense is... Uh, an indigenous word. So it's not even Spanish. I obviously knew the market would have trouble pronouncing it. Um, and that, that, that was obvious, but I felt that it was really important to represent Nicaragua, uh, as, as purely as possible. And, uh, so we, I started working on La the Blend and then Alex and I started collaborating on on the artwork and he really did an amazing job, you know, really hand painting everything at first and then translating that into you know digital files. Um we wanted to make it you know really like that traditional Cuban box dress kind mm-hmm. of style with the filetes um and we kind of took inspiration from the uh, kind of like a little bit of Romeo and Juliet in the sense of, you know, the, the, we used the Nicaragua national flower, the national tree. Uh, so everything about it was uh, Nicaragua to the bone, uh, including the cigar and the blend. And uh, we launched that at the trade show in 2015. And that was just one, one brand we, we started with we were off to the races. Um, I started, you know, really learning that year about the market and, you know, I started the company much smaller than I had originally planned. You know, I originally planned on potentially taking on investors and, you know, starting with a bigger team and maybe launching with a larger portfolio, but I didn't want to lose a, a huge part of the company. Just when I was starting, you know, excuse me, it was, uh, you know, pre-valuation. Everything was projections. You had the looming FDA regulations, which you know brings a lot of risk to to investors. So I said, let me just start it by myself. We'll start it small, grassroots, and we'll put our heart and soul into it and uh, build it from there. And that's pretty much what we've
0: done. From the beginning, so
1: that I think first, that's yeah.
0: Because, you know, when you bring in more people, then that's more opinions. At some point, or unless you tell them that they're going to be silent partners, which never really works yeah. out anyway, because they always have an opinion. They're like, "It's my money. I want to have a say. So in it." So that's what I didn't want. Yeah, right. and to me, owing somebody money is more
1: stress than working for someone. You know, you you. I had gotten out of a situation, because I didn't, you know, I wanted my own freedom. But uh, owing somebody money, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm a no debt kind of guy. And mm-hmm. I I always pay my debts. Uh, so I that pressure was definitely something I didn't want to take on. Uh, hey, there's enough pressure alone, you know, with all the work that needs to be done. So so we started it small, you know, and uh, launched that year, and then I followed up that year with Charter Oak, Tabernacle, and our infused brand, The Upsetters, at the next show. And then that really that really then gave us the portfolio and footprint to actually, you know, really represent within humidors, um,
0: which is I remember, necessary. I remember, I think I was at, I must've been at that show when you first launched that stuff. And I remember your booth just being, engulfed with retailers, which is good. It's a good thing, but you were super busy. I remember you were like running around trying to like like, okay, let me speak to this retailer. Now let me speak to this retailer. Like, hold on, like, hold on. You were just like running back and forth that year. And I just remember, yeah. well, wow, it's like that's that's good though. I mean it was
1: like really good. Yeah. It's really, really good. And we were, you know, undermanned <laughs> for the reception. Um but it was it was definitely flattering to see the reception because i had met a lot of retailers throughout the years so they they knew about me uh they knew that i was experienced on the the manufacturing side so it was really flattering to see all the support you know we received that year and then it starts spreading
0: you know yeah it's it's really it's been interesting to watch like i said your trajectory in the industry because to go from like behind the scenes to in front of the scenes (laughs) and really just embrace like who you all are. Um, You know, I think I mean, you have a really good collaboration with High Clear, which is it doesn't get spoken about enough, I think. But it's a really interesting cigar that, again, like it's
1: this past year, High Clear has taken off. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's I think at first people didn't realize it was part of the foundation portfolio. And mm-hmm. then as that sort of, I think, cleared up and people started trying the cigar, it's uh, really start, starting to take off. And we have something special we're gonna be releasing this year for, for High Claire.
0: Wow. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was thinking about too is, you know, and I've said this several times on Deep Cuts, but when I first got into the industry in 2010, You know, boutique, you know, was like this word used to kind of separate everybody else from like the bigger companies and stuff like that. And, you know, and you used to read articles about the 80-20 rule, like, you know, 80% of the, the. and I know it's different outside of the cigar industry, but in the cigar industry, the 80-20 rule meant 80% of your humidor was big brands. And then 20% was like, you know, everybody else that you might take a gamble on, but, they didn't have a big as a following as the bigger brands. And so, you know, that was that. But to me, and maybe you could speak to this, but it's kind of changed I think now in 2022 is a lot of retailers that I speak to at least are actually looking for something new. Like boutique is a is whole movement, you know, and it's, it was kind of started by Pete Johnson and, um, you know, Dion, yeah, and Matt booths and stuff like that. But it's like, boutique is no longer the the you know the, the bad word or the word to kind of like separate everybody else. Like you want to be boutique because retailers are kind of looking for that. You know, they, they like- Yeah, it. it's <laughs> interesting. It's interesting to see how that's
1: changed over the years, especially since I was in the retail shop because it was definitely, you know, those bigger companies that dominated the humidors. But it, it's interesting to see the different areas and the different retailers and the different, you know, locations around the country and their philosophies. Because I, I definitely meet all different types of philosophies, you know, that 80-20, which, you know, okay, it makes sense as far as if you're a retailer, um, you know, you, you want your staples because you have people coming in asking for them, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's a different sale than… You having to actually get out from the cash register and actually, you know, be on the floor selling all the time, and people are looking for those brands. And I think people get nervous if you don't have them, then they're going to go someplace else, right, to get them if you're not carrying them. Um, And then you you have, you know, people experimenting with the boutique brands to see, you know, okay, what brands are going to kind of stick around and having something different. And and then you have shops that are completely opposite. They're all boutiques and they just have maybe the key sizes from the big, big guys that they can get kind of anywhere from distributors and stuff like that. And they're focusing on having something unique, having something different. Um, so it, it's definitely shifted compared to when I started in retail stores. It's definitely more, there's a lot more boutique, you know, on retailers' shelves than I've, I've seen. In a long time, I I say our whole industry is boutique for the most part. If you think uh, about it,
0: the whole like premium. I think Raphael Nadal when I was working on some story about him, like he he pretty much that's what he said is like by nature all you know this is a niche industry, <laughs> and all cigars are. I mean, it's not something that's you know, smoked by masses like this isn't Coca-Cola or, you know, any other big brand that people just normally will will bring in. It's like it's very niche. So like you were saying, brand to some degree is boutique. And boutique is more today an attitude than it is a category within itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, handmade cigars is a very small industry compared to, so many other industries in itself there's not many people that smoke handmade cigars in the realm of of the world
0: now what have you been i know you've been super busy because in a couple weeks is a big trade show and retailers are obviously looking forward to what you have to offer and consumers are looking forward to you being able to offer it to the retailers so they can buy it so is there anything new that you're working on that you can share a with
1: bunch of, I, I,
0: unfortunately I can't yet
1: share. Um, but I'll be sending you out some press releases, uh, soon, I will share. We are going to be releasing a new core line, which okay. I'm, I'm adding to the portfolio, which I'm really excited about. Um, so that's going to be released at the show. Then we have, um, a couple of line extensions. Uh, that we're gonna be doing for Willense and Wise Man Maduro. Um, Then we're gonna be doing a really special box for Highclere. You know, we work with Highclere Castle and the gentleman who lives in the castle, Lord Carnarvon, his great-grandfather discovered King Tut's tomb with Howard Carter back in, uh, I think it was 1921, um, so we're gonna be doing a special release uh for the discovery of King Tut's tomb, which we're really
0: excited about. You know, the, the funny thing is the other I think it was last week I was watching uh the news and of course there's a new Downton abbey movie. Yes. That they film in High Clear Castle, and it came up that you're not allowed to have anything other than water in High Clear Castle, and they were and they <laughs> they were trying to make an exception for I think her, it's Dame Maggie Smith because so they were able to get her tea but they were like it was a big to do because they were like I think we can at least get her let her have have tea because it seems like a, a crime they like you know to let this big actress be you know in this movie and not let her have like real tea like n- n- she shouldn't have to fake it and drink water out of a teacup so yeah, I thought English tea I thought that was really interesting, um, that hype there. Um, speaking of celebrities, I know your your cigar pops up a lot on Joe Rogan. How did that come about?
1: That's my boy Joe.
0: Because <laughs> that's not like a story that everybody wants to know. I think it's like a dream for any cigar. You always are looking for good placement or just good endorsement for a celebrity or somebody of notoriety to, to like smoke your cigar. Here you are. I mean, it's all the time. <laughs> How did that come about? We made it
1: happen. We made it happen. Uh, you know, jo- Joe, I've been a big fan of uh, Joe's podcast for many years. Uh, always had it on, you know, as I'm working on spreadsheets and stuff. So um, I a good friend of mine who is is in the industry out there in California, who also is a big cigar smoker, Told me one day he saw how much I loved Joe, and we started noticing that Joe was smoking cigars here and there. So he's like, "Get me some special boxes, and I'm going to get them to Joe for you." I was like, "Really?" Once us. he's like, "Yeah, give me some special boxes." So I talked to Alex, and we we had some hand painted boxes done. Alex did a couple of hand painted boxes on uh, some uh, wise man Maduro boxes. So we did one of his logo and then I told him we needed to do something Nicka style so we kind of made Joe and Nicaraguan shaman uh, on one of the covers. And then my buddy was having a tough time. I mean Joe's a tough character to get get to. I think so many people have tried to you know get him cigars over the years and and it just wasn't happening. And then I, I, I learned that Joe was moving you know, to Texas. So my buddy was like, ah, oh, man, my guy's not coming through. I'm really pissed at him. And this." And I said, listen, do not send him the boxes. The last thing you want when you're moving is another box. Right. I mean, you do not want another box when you're moving. Because I had put together an ashtray for him, you know, a nice little care package. So it was, you know, months and months were going by and it was, just wasn't happening. And I was like, it's, it's not going to happen. Don't worry. You know, it's all good. Then we just randomly end up meeting through my buddy, one of Joe's friends, who is another cigar smoker. And he happened to be going to visit Joe that weekend at his new place in Texas. And he hand delivered the boxes to him.
0: Wow.
1: And that was like September 2020. And I didn't ask after that. I didn't, you know, I wasn't like, did he, you know, did he get on? Did he, I didn't want to be a a pain in the ass. And a couple, it was like October, I was watching the podcast in the background and I looked up and I saw our ashtray on the table and our cutter behind some water bottles. I was like, Oh my God, he, he hadn't said anything about it. You know, I hadn't heard, he hadn't given us any shout outs. And I go back you trace the ashtray appeared for the first time on 2020, September, 2020, September 11th, 2020 It was the first time the ashtray pops up. And then election day came and he was smoking them. Wow. And then that began this series of shout outs, man. He, I mean, he just started shouting us out. He ended up showing the hand painted box. And then it's just been a couple of years. Um, he ended up sending me a message on on Instagram. He slid into my DMs and uh, you know thanked me. And I ended up making him a, a nice custom humidor. So if you look in the studio, you got foundation, all of this, the ashtray, we got two humidors in the back. He, he's got some Charter Oaks there. And then I made him his own cigar uh, with his band on it, me and Alex. Uh, Made a nice little little cigar for him, and he's been smoking them ever since, man. He he's really been enjoying them. So he's smoking Wise Man Maduro's, and then I made him a variation of uh, Tabernacle with broadleaf uh, for his cigar, and he he really likes those heavy flavor profiles. You know, he likes spicy food, barbecue, and so he he really took to uh, both the Wise Man and uh, those those broadleaf blends. So
0: that's awesome. You I, I couldn't do an interview with you in and asking that question because that was such a like a like a double take yeah. moment where you're like, hey, it's I'm shocking, gonna- man. I, I mean, you know,
1: totally unsolicited except for getting him the boxes and he's just been super cool and and just really, you know, doesn't have to be shouting us out. But it's, it's great. It's really awesome.
0: So at this point in the show, when we're getting ready to wind things down, I usually kind of flip it, uh, the style of it a little bit. And the final two questions are usually kind of advice questions. So I'll ask you the question and you kind of give the listeners and watchers uh, a little bit of uh, advice from your point of view. Okay. um, The first question is, well, it's not really advice, but what's your why? So what motivates you to do what you do? what motivates me to do what i do uh huh um,
1: love pretty much love for for the industry love for cigars i mean yeah if i didn't have pa- the passion or the love uh, i probably
0: wouldn't be doing this the second question is somebody comes to you and they say nick i have an idea for a business, it might not necessarily be a cigar or tobacco-related business, but I have this idea. How do I get started? What kind of advice do you give that person? Research development,
1: first and foremost. Um, I think that's really important, is really understanding what you're getting into is crucial. Um, uh, understanding the ins and outs of any business, you know, from statistics to the culture of the business uh doing your
0: your research is very important and since i have time for one more question uh the curveball question since i just saw dr strange is and there's some multi-universe out there where you did not get into the cigar industry what would you be doing archaeology be indiana jones yeah. Or a
1: microbiologist that, <laughs> <laughs> our yeah, archeology span probably. Yeah. Indiana Jones. Cool. Yeah. I'm into it. That's what I do at, uh, in my
0: off hours when I retire, I'm going to be Indiana Jones. And, uh, I know I asked you, I think this question when I was writing the last story I wrote on you back in 2020. Um, but, Like, how would you define success? There's some question that I think I asked you, and you were like, "I don't know." (laughs) You're like, "I have to get back to you on that." (laughs) I'm going to see two years later if you finally have an answer.
1: You know, I think at this point in my life is is really happiness um, is is being successful and being content in what you're doing. Cause I think a lot of people, you kind of chase the, chase the, the monkey a lot and uh, you end up losing a lot of moments and, you know, we, we only have each moment. So being happy in the moment, I think is, is crucial and taking time to, you know, really give thanks for what you, what you have. Um, I think that's success. Cause you can, I mean, you can have a billion dollars and still be you know, a mess, depressed, you know, it, it's it's not a good uh, determining factor of success. So I think real happiness and being content is, uh, is success for me.
0: Awesome. Well, for those people who have not been watching this and who may be listening to this, can you tell them what website, what social media they need to follow in order to keep up with Foundation and yourself? www.foundationcigars.com. We're in the process of uh,
1: launching a new website for July, but uh, we got a lot of great content there. Foundation Cigars on YouTube. We got some great, great videos. We have a phenomenal seed to cigar time-lapse video, which is is really fantastic. Some great brand highlight videos. Uh, Instagram, Foundation Cigars. We're all over Instagram. Uh, really really involved with a lot of these instagram you know users and we we love reposting a lot of content and, and seeing all the foundation fans out there foundation cigars on facebook yeah you can find me at nick r agua that's my that's my uh ig handle and if you want to follow thief you find him at thief operandi <laughs> on instagram <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Like I said, it, it was one of those interviews that I can check off the list for this year that I wanted to do. And I know that we only are speaking for we only we're getting ready to wrap up, but I'll, we, we'll be able to bring you back on. And now that we got all the intro stuff out of the way, we can dig into some other topics uh, for your second appearance okay. whenever that is later on. I have to have
1: you up to Connecticut at some point.
0: Yeah, I, I've never I've never been to Connecticut <laughs> we got to get you on the
1: farms so you can see it firsthand. I, I'm game for that. So thank you. You so can always come to Nicaragua too. Hopefully the Nicaraguan Cigar Fest is happening uh, in January too. So that should be
0: a good time. Cool. Well, yeah. we be seeing you at uh, PCA in a couple of weeks. So uh, we'll catch up then. I'll say hello. I know you're, you're going to be running around probably again. <laughs> I'll show you all the new goods. I look forward to it and look forward to sharing that with, uh, everyone here. Um, so thank you for coming on of you who are watching. If you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, make sure you hit that like button or subscribe button to, uh, we post, we do at least a show a week. Uh, and, um, for anybody who's listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please make sure you hit that subscribe button and also leave a review because reviews help us to improve the show. Uh, let us know, and if you want to see any of the past interviews we've done, this is actually episode ninety. So we've made it to ninety, which is more than I thought that we would <laughs> ever do. So, um, if you want to see any of the, this episode or any of the past episodes, go to DeepCutsLive dot um, And so, thank you again, Nick, and I look forward to seeing you, like I said, in a couple of weeks. And for uh, watching, uh, until next time.